the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They, they see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Doug Delpica. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on today? Well, what the hell is going on is that we are seeing the deadliest political unrest in Iran since the Iranian Revolution 40 years ago. There are mass protests to began about two weeks ago when the Iranians announced a 50% increase in gasoline prices. Within a few days, there were mass protests across the country demanding not just that the gas prices go down, but that the regime go down as well. There have been protests in 29 of 31 provinces. 50 military bases have been attacked. The Iranian government's own estimates they put out, there have been attacks on 731 banks, 140 public spaces, nine religious centers, 70 gas stations. And uh, protesters have destroyed, this is very specific, 307 vehicles, 183 police cars, 1,076 motorcycles, 34 ambulances. This is the official Iranian estimate. Human rights organizations say that between 180 and 450 people have been killed, 2,000 wounded, and 7,000 people arrested by the regime. This is, you know, we're, we're sitting here in Washington focused on impeachment because that's all we talk about in Washington. But outside of, you know, our little shining city on a hill here, such as it is, <laughs> we're, there, there's, shining there's, uh, there's real stuff happening in the world. People are demanding freedom in Hong Kong, in Iran, in Iraq, in Lebanon, and nobody has any time of day to give them. No, it's absolutely true. And so what's super interesting to me is that, it, first of all, these demonstrations in Iran began, as so many do, because of anger over the withdrawal of a subsidy. In this case, gas prices were set to rise. The fact that the Iranian government executed this price rise with such incompetence is surprising because everywhere, not just... It was a you know, Friday news dump. They announced yeah. it like late Friday. And people... They, people and wouldn't people, notice. People, and people, well, and people <laughs> notice because the Iranian economy is in the toilet for two reasons, partly because of the American maximum pressure campaign, but also because of epic, rampant mismanagement of the economy by the government of the Islamic Republic. So you know, double whammy on them. And people are having a hard time. People are in some instances not getting paid. And to deliver news that, hey, you know, tomorrow when you hit the pump, it's not going to be as cheap as it once was. Needless to say, it took the cap off of the, the bottle of people's frustrations. And the demonstrations very quickly turned into something that wasn't just about gas prices. Yeah, absolutely. And look, this, it's interesting because the regime is trying to blame the United States. For these, like like all regimes do, whenever somebody rises up, they try and blame the CIA and you know bring back memories of the of the. Unless 1950s it's Donald coup. Trump, then they're just trying to blame the FBI. But but the, but the point being is that the regime is trying to blame the United States when the truth is its own corruption, its own lack of priorities that are to blame. However. The maximum pressure campaign that the Trump administration has implemented is directly responsible in a way, too, because you had the Obama administration came in and lifted sanctions as part of the Iran deal. And that set up a lot of expectations in the Iranian public that they were going to people, their lives were going to improve. They were going to do better. What did the regime do? They spent that money. They've spent 
$18 billion in Iraq, according to some estimates, in trying to sow disorder in Iraq. In they, Iraq, in Syria, in said, Yemen, on Hamas, in Lebanon, on Hezbollah. Exactly. Yeah, the so, Iranian government will spend money on anything except but its own it's people. Iran. Right. Yeah, but its own people. So that money didn't go to them. Then the Trump administration reimposes the sanctions and makes them even tighter, especially on oil. And the Iranian economy is basically in freefall right now. And so they're now punishing their people. So their people didn't benefit when the sanctions were lifted. And when the sanctions are reimposed, their people are getting screwed. But the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps has its money. And, and all of the corrupt people and the all the corrupt people in the government have their money. And so, you know, we indirectly do have there is a responsibility for this, and it's a good thing. No, no, I completely agree with you. But there's another interesting thing going on at the same time. So as demonstrations were starting up in Iran, they were coming on the heels of similarly dramatic demonstrations in Lebanon. Again, same thing. It's about corruption. It's about incompetence. It's about the fact that in Lebanon you know, which we think of as a pretty developed country in the Middle East. People don't have power for 24 hours a day. I mean, Iraq, that's one thing. But Lebanon, they don't have power for 24 hours a day. There's a great story. If you haven't read it, there's a great story in the New York Times about this, about how the corruption that's involved in this. So like you were talking about the power outages. Yeah. The generator lobby in Lebanon doesn't want them to fix the power problem because they're making there's there's oh. there's kickbacks to all the generators. What about lobby. the prime minister? The yeah. prime minister and the foreign minister, who's the son-in-law of the president, both have contracts with the Turkish company that is providing the exorbitant electricity that's being generated offshore for Lebanon. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, you know, this is the kind of thing that happens in these countries. People are sick and tired of it. People poured into the street in Lebanon demonstrations in Beirut day and night, and finally the government fell, but not before Iran's proxies were sent out, Hezbollah was sent out to try to quash these demonstrations. Now, similarly, in Iraq, same thing. You know, not about political issues, but about corruption, about the fact that people don't have access to, again, electricity, jobs, anger about the corruption and incompetent and lack of services delivery on the part of the government, the basic things you want your government for. And what happens? The demonstrations start, but they quickly spread. And now they've attacked the Iranian consulate in Basra. And most importantly, most of these demonstrations in Iraq have been in the Shiite areas of the country. Remember, Iran, Persian Shiites, Iraq, Arab Shiites, and they want none of this. They're attacking Iranian proxies, Iranian businesses, and the Iranian consulate. It's great. Yeah, the New York Times reports this, that protesters set fire to the Iranian consulate in the Shiite pilgrimage city of Najaf last week. In Baghdad last week, schoolboys wearing Iraqi flags as capes over their uniforms walked past a scorched building chanting against Iranian Major General Qasim Soleimani, the head of the Revolutionary Guards Quds Force, who sought to shore up uh, Mr. Abdul Mahdi's government against, against the pressure from the street. And so Prime Minister Abdul Mahdi has resigned. Again, he's still in power and still in office because of the complexities of that. Same with Prime Minister. Hariri in Lebanon. So we've got three countries here, Iran itself, and two countries that Iran dominates, Lebanon and Iraq. The places are on fire. The public is furious with their Iranian overlords, with their IRGC overlords, with their corrupt mullahs who are governing over them. And what has the United States done? How have we capitalized on this, Mark? Well, first of all, (laughs) Danny, uh, this wouldn't be happening, as I pointed out, without the United States and the maximum pressure campaign. The, when the, so, therefore, now that we yeah. have fruit for this maximum pressure campaign, be, what's happening? We need to be doing something more. And absolutely. we're not. 
you know, well, first of all, you and I don't know exactly everything that we're doing. For example, the Iranian regime, during the protest, they blacked out the Internet. Secretary Pompeo has said that we have done some things to give access to the protesters to communications. I I guarantee you there's stuff that's going on behind the scenes and underneath the surface of of what we're seeing that we're we're doing. But look, the, the reality is America is really good at either directly or indirectly overthrowing regimes, we're not so good at what comes next. That's never been our strong suit. Right. And 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 <laughs> and, and you would think that that was the primary lesson learned from Iraq. This is what drove And me. Libya. Right. And, and Libya and, and, and Afghanistan. Name the country. And, and, and name, name, and name right. any country in the world where we've had a role right. in overthrowing and of course, the regime. And of course, the incorrect conclusion that people draw is that's why we shouldn't be in the business of this. We should just let other countries, you know, and other dictators oppress their own people. What business is it of ours, whether the people of Lebanon, the people of Libya, the people of Iraq, the people of Iran, the people of Egypt, the people of Syria, I could go on here, are free. And the answer is, well, that's how we get, you know, ISIS and Al-Qaeda. But that's a different yes. that's a different podcast. My complaint about this administration is that it has, and we've talked about this before, that it has a bifurcated foreign policy vis-a-vis Iran. It has a foreign policy that is to destabilize the regime, to put it under maximum pressure, to sanction everybody and their grandmother, to squeeze the Iranians every possible way we can with a view to... And then there's the view of the president of the United States with a view to getting them to the table to have negotiations just like Barack Obama did. That's the problem. The administration hasn't actually put its money where its mouth is when it comes to Iran policy. Our maximum pressure campaign isn't aimed at anything serious. Well, I'll tell you, I disagree with that. Look, I know that the president wants to negotiate with the Iranians just like he wanted to negotiate with Kim Jong-un, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is, I personally, I don't care. If, they, if the Iranians ever come to the table or not, because the maximum pressure campaign is, and I've said this before on the show, and we've talked about this, is a good in and of itself, because every dollar that the Iranian regime doesn't have is a dollar that they're not giving to Hamas, they're not giving to Hezbollah, they're not giving to their proxy forces in Syria, they're not spending in Yemen. They, yeah. These are they, 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 we, There has been a dramatic effect on their ability to carry out terror and export their revolution around the region. When they were flush with cash after the Obama administration cut their deal, they didn't give that money to the Iranian people. They didn't improve the lives of their people. They spent that money on a binge of exporting revolution around the world. And that's been curtailed in part. I'm not saying it's good enough, but I'm saying that I I don't care if they come to the table. Okay, I don't care if they come to the table either. But let me put this to you in terms in in different terms. Okay, so you can understand it. Let me that, explain that, this to you in a way you that can was understand, left young man. <laughs> that was left unspoken. <laughs> and yet that is what I mean. Look, if we think about it this way, every time we look at the Iranian regime at a tipping point, and I'm not sure this was a tipping point. We're going to talk about that with our guest in a minute, but I'm not sure this was a tipping point. But every time the Iranian government is teeter-tottering and they don't get pushed over the edge. They learn from it, and they get better. They get more ruthless. They get more aggressive. You know, it is a lesson that we have learned. In 2009, there was a revolution inside Iran, and the Iranian government didn't know what to do about it. And in those years since, they have bought aggressively from our friends, the Germans, the Chinese, and others, surveillance and suppression equipment. They put more people in prison. They now run a very serious police state that wasn't the one that existed in 2009. They're going to learn lessons from this now, and they're going to be a more formidable enemy no well, assuming sanction- this isn't going to succeed. Well, hang, on, hang on a second. No sanctions regime has any staying power. 
We saw that with Iraq. I can promise you, if we have a Democratic president, we're not going to have a sanctions. Well, regime. you just said it. There you go. Right. That's the Iranians are waiting for the elections. They're hoping that Donald Trump is going to lose and that a Democratic president is going to come back and rejoin the Obama nuclear deal and lift all these sanctions and everything will be copacetic and they survive. That's their survival plan. So, yeah, maybe Trump isn't perfect. Maybe the Trump administration isn't thinking this through. They don't have a perfect strategy. Guess what? I, we, I was in the Bush administration. We certainly didn't have a plan for post-war Iraq. We all watched the Obama administration. They certainly didn't have a plan for post-war Libya. You know, that's not what we're good so, at. So let me excuse. Not yeah, an excuse. I was about to say. It's not an excuse. Vote Donald but, Trump, people. We suck, too. No. That'll be his bumper sticker. Vote, vote Donald Trump because the Democrats are going to help Iran recover from this. But it, but we are not exploiting this enough. We are not agreed. doing enough. We are not taking the opportunities that have been created by the better policies of this administration. Having Thank you. Poli- Yay. I, I, Good. Okay. I'm willing to accept that. But we're not taking advantage of it in Lebanon, in Iraq, to push the Iranians out, or inside Iran itself. And that is just garbage. This is a lesson we should have learned. We should have a more coherent foreign policy. It is ridiculous that we do not stand more with the Iranian people. And I, you know, I'm a fan of Mike Pompeo's, but the reality is we may be doing more, but we're not doing enough. Well, we're doing better than the previous regime oh, and yeah. and better than you, you think you know, President Elizabeth Warren's going to do a great job. Yeah, Joe yeah, Biden yeah, yeah. is going to do a great job. I don't want this to get into politics. Or what aboutism? You know. Or what aboutism? Oh, wait, we already went there. Never mind. OK, so we Ooh. need to welcome our awesome guest. <laughs> <laughs> So whenever we need to know something, you know, and we want to talk about something and it's happening right now and it's pretty urgent, we turn to one of our colleagues at AEI and we've done this before. Uh, I think the name is going to be familiar to everybody. Michael Rubin. Michael's a resident scholar here at AEI. He's a prolific author uh, on these very issues. He's really mired in uh, not just the, the big picture, but in the details of what's going on in inside Iraq, inside Iran. And he's on his way to Iraq next week. Yep, he sure is. And that's one of the things I really appreciate about Michael is that when he writes about things, whether it is Somaliland or it is Afghanistan or it is Iraq or it is Rojava, you know, the northeastern part of Syria where the Kurds live, he goes. He's been in each of those places. I don't want to see our insurance bill that results from it, but I'm very happy because it gives a lot of credibility to the things that he says. He's bringing back firsthand information from all these places, and so it's great to have him on the show. Michael, welcome back to the podcast. Well, thank you again. All right. Well, it's great to have you. So the biggest protests in 40 years are taking place in Iran. Hundreds of thousands of people in almost every city and province rising up over uh, increases in gas prices, challenging the regime. Tell us what the hell is going on. Okay. Well, uh, about a month ago now, there was a sudden rise in gasoline prices. This is, of course, coming against the backdrop of the whole maximum pressure campaign. And basically, Iran doesn't have a lot of money left to spend on ordinary people. So what they wanted to do was raise gas prices. Iran has one of the most heavily subsidized economies. And so this is nothing new. When Egypt has raised prices and cut subsidies, when other countries have as well, it's led to riots. Even What's in Saudi Arabia. Story? And in Saudi Arabia, too. Absolutely, Danny. What's really curious here is as much of a security state as Iran is, just how unprepared they were for the sheer anger which, which occurred. Now, in the United States, we often navel-gaze, and we think it's about Donald Trump or about the Joint Conference Plan of Action. But actually, if we look at the Iran nuclear deal and the sanctions release, 
This in many ways backfired on the Iranian government as well, because the Iranian people were expecting much more to be delivered to them. But the way the Iranian economy is set up is the Revolutionary Guard have a stranglehold. So while Obama's theory was, let's flood them with cash, and that will sort of bring them into the world community, it didn't do that. The money didn't trickle down, and so people are angry. The, the revolution back in 1979 was a bit of a class revolution, and so a lot of the people who weren't the elites, who weren't privileged, joined the Revolutionary Guard. They joined the besiege, and under the revolution, they became elite. They took advantage of the Iranian equivalent of the GI Bill. They became doctors, lawyers, high-level civil servants. Their kids got the best education where before they wouldn't have had any education. And so their views of what they expect from life are radically different from what the elderly Ayatollahs are saying. And let's remember, the revolution happened 40 years ago. So the Ayatollahs, who were 40 years old back at the time of the revolution, are now in their 80s, and everyone senses that this is a regime in transition. There's going to be regime change. It's going to have nothing to do with the United States pushing regime change and much more to do with the fact that Ayatollahs aren't immortal. So just coming back to the question of these demonstrations, you suggest that the Iranian government really kind of miscalculated the reaction to the the gas price rise. One of our colleagues um, at the Middle East Institute, Alex Vatanka, said that in the seven days of demonstrations in Iran this year, more people were killed by the authorities than in seven months of 2009, the last time there were very substantial demonstrations against the regime in Iran. What do you think is going on? Why the really, really serious crackdown? Well, I think what they want to do is put the fear of God into people to try to get them to stay home, to say that no protest is a guarantee of safety and that the best way if you want to keep your sons, your husbands, your daughters and your wives safe is to stay at home. Now, the interesting thing here is, let's take Syria, for example. When the Syrian uprising began, when the Syrian civil war began, it was almost like Bashar al-Assad, the Syrian leader, wanted to do what his father had done back in 1982, which is confront protests with overwhelming violence. The reason it didn't work is back in 1982, the Syrians were able to control communications. Back when the Syrian civil war started, they weren't. And so the sheer brutality just caused outrage, galvanized more people, let them organize. Now, when we go back to Iran and we look at what's happening, one of the amazing technical aspects of this is that as soon as the protests started, the Iranians completely cut themselves off from the Internet. And there hadn't been at this scale. The regime did. The regime went dark on the internet, right? Yeah, exactly. The regime managed to shut down the internet, shut down cell phones, shut down all communications. Now, on one hand, it's pretty amazing that you had nationwide protests that just developed spontaneously without that sort of communication. But on the other hand, the Iranian government, to answer your question, Danny, may have figured that they could simply crush all dissent because there would be no one to watch. Well, this seems to be a theme that uh, we've been discussing in other episodes. We just had Lech Wałęsa on recently, and he talked about how basically Gorbachev wasn't willing to unleash the kind of mass killing that was required to crush uh, the Solidarity Movement and the other freedom movements in Eastern Europe. And it seems like the Iranian regime is much more willing to use that kind of violence against its own people in order to maintain its power. Is that fair? 
That is fair. And what, what's really important, Mark, is to understand where the Iranian leadership is coming from. And this doesn't justify their thoughts, but according to the political, if you will, theology that forms the basis of the um, Islamic Republic, the supreme leader is basically the deputy of the Messiah on earth. He's the Messiah's placeholder until the Messiah returns. Therefore, and this is where the fallacy and the logic of those who wanted to work with the reformers comes through, there can be no muddle through reform just because 90% of the country may want it. Because if you believe that you have God on your side, the whole purpose of the Revolutionary Guard is to sort of protect you from popular will. And so when people simply hope for muddle through reform, it misses the big picture. There can't be meaningful reform in Iran until the Revolutionary Guard somehow turns on itself or is eliminated. So uh, Danny mentioned the 2009 protests and how there were much fewer people killed uh, in those protests than these. One of the differences between then and now is those protests were over a stolen election and were mostly carried out by the urban elite in the country. These seem to be working class protests. These seem to be a much more broad based, spread out more throughout the country and more driven by poor and working class people who are rising up against the regime, which is something new in Iran, isn't it? Well, to some extent it is. I mean, you've had other protests which were cutting across social classes. For example, in 2001, there were protests when the Iranians suspected their government had ordered their soccer team to um, throw a World Cup qualifying match. But the fact of the matter is, what is absolutely clear, Mark, is that men and women, minorities and the majority sects, working class and elite, everyone is starting to unify in opposition to the Islamic Republic. And what makes this interesting is if we go back to 1979 and the original Islamic Revolution, historians estimate that 10% of Iranians took part. This is before social media, before cell phones, before the internet. That's an amazing figure considering only 1% of Americans took part in our revolution. Only 2% of Frenchmen and Russians took part in the French Revolution or the Bolshevik Revolution. And when they overthrew the Shah, they were all unified in what they were against. They weren't unified in any common vision. And so the danger now as we look ahead, and I'm not sure the Americans or the outside world are planning for this, is if the Iranians are successful in overthrowing Ayatollah Khamenei and the Islamic Republic, there's absolutely no unifying program uh, to ensure unity in the country that Iran could very easily descend into a civil war. So I really want to ask you about how much you think the government is at risk in Iran and also about the U.S. role. But before we get to that, because I think all of this is wrapped up together, let's talk a little bit about the demonstrations that are going on in Iraq and in Lebanon right now, because in many ways, those demonstrations are also about Iran. Just start with Iraq. What do you see going on? Well, when it comes to Iraq, Iraqis are sick and tired of corruption, and they are sick and tired of not having an ability, like the Iranians next door, to maximize the fulfillment of their lives. Now, it's not about grand politics and grand strategy in the way the United States see it. When Iraqis look at Iran, they look at, as, at a suffocating, arrogant presence, which simply undermines their economy. When I was down in Sal, which is where Iraq, Iran, and Kuwait all come together, Shiite fishermen told me the biggest mistake the Americans made was not killing enough Iranians on the way out. And remember that these are Shiite Iraqis talking about Shiite Iranians. 
So I'm really happy to hear something that undermines this ridiculous notion that somehow all Shiites are pro-Iran and all Sunnis are pro-something else. So this really goes to that. But, you know, these demonstrations in Iraq, which haven't gotten that much attention here in the United States, have toppled the government. Adel Abdel Mehdi... Well, toppled the government maybe sometime soon. But the prime minister has tendered his resignation, something that the Iranian... This is the thing. The way it works in Iraq, Danny, is the prime minister could constitutionally tender his resignation to the president, at which point he'd be gone. But instead, what the prime minister did was tender his resignation to parliament, which then has some time to choose a new prime minister, during which point the current prime minister continues to be in power. And we've seen that it can take months for the Iraqis to put together a new government. So you got a situation where, in some ways, he's getting credit for resigning. On the other hand, he's still the one with his fingers on the controls. Yeah, that's true. You're right. But he's getting credit for resigning. The Iranians we know told him not to resign. Similarly, in Lebanon, we've seen that demonstrations which did topple the government, although, again, the prime minister is still sitting there waiting for a new government to be named, but that toppled the Hariri government are demonstrating against Iran. They're demonstrating against Iran's proxies in Lebanon, Hezbollah. And Iran actually ordered Hezbollah out into the street to oppose demonstrators, and uh, and they used violence to try to repress the demonstrations that were going on in Lebanon. What do you think is going on here? Well, I mean, the Iranians have something called Iran Zamin, which is basically greater Iran. It's sort of the way Vladimir Putin looks at the former states of the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. They see it as their natural birthright to dominate these areas. The problem is, Just like Turkey with neo-Ottomanism, the Turks have a much fonder remembrance of the Ottoman Empire than do its subject peoples. Well, the Iranians have a much fonder remembrance of greater Persia than did its subject peoples. And so people are starting to get upset. Now, you've got a situation here where people are resisting the Iranians abroad because they're tired of being suppressed. And then we've seen teachers unions, for example, inside Iran protest, forget about Palestine, forget about Hezbollah, and think about our salaries. So the Iranians are getting it from both sides. Now, here's the problem, Danny, and this is something which I think a lot of people in Washington miss. Just because people are are seeking freedom doesn't mean that, as Lequilensis said on a previous episode, that the government's willing to allow that freedom to exist. And when people say, oh, the Iranians are are running out of money, they may only have $10 billion left in their foreign reserves that they have access to. The fact of the matter is, as we see in North Korea, if a government doesn't care about its people, it doesn't need to feed its people. And so this is ultimately the danger with Iran. Just because they're poor, just because the tide is turning against them doesn't mean they're going to give up. Well, you've written a whole book on that, uh, Dancing with Dictators, that talks about uh, about that. Uh, but here, here's the question. I mean, to go back to Danny's original question, does the fact that the regime is cracking down so violently with unprecedented violence, killing so many people, arresting, I think, reportedly 7,000 people arrested, many hundreds killed, is this a sign that they really think that they're in, under threat and that they could fall? Well, absolutely. It is a sign that they think they're under threat and that they could fall. If you want, I mean, when it just comes to looking at Iran, we often talk about what we know about Iran. Sometimes we miss what, after 40 years, we don't know about Iran. One of the big issues we don't know. We talk about hardliners and reformers when it comes to politics. But for all the billions we spend on intelligence, we don't have a good sense of what the factional breakdowns are 
within the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. We don't know whether this lieutenant is a hardliner or a reformer. So if, let's think through what the future, let's say that these protests succeed in bringing down the regime. So Iran is the leading world sponsor of terror, an expansionist regime that carries terrorist attacks, evades its neighbors, attacks Saudi Arabia, attacks U.S. drones. Is it possible, you know, you say that the opposition doesn't really know what it wants. Is there any circumstance under which something worse could come out uh, if the regime fell than what exists today? I, I think there's two main possibilities, and neither of them are, are great, Mark. The first one, and, and they're not mutually exclusive either, there is uh, the Revolutionary Guard after the Iran-Iraq war in nine, from 1980 to 1988, it didn't want to go back into the barracks, and so it started moving into civilian government enterprises. Today, they control, by some estimates, up to 40% of the Iranian economy. They've squirreled away billions of dollars. Their official budget is only about one-tenth of their actual budget. So the fact of the matter is, if the Ayatollahs fall tomorrow, you still have the Revolutionary Guard, and not just the Revolutionary Guard, a Revolutionary Guard with billions of dollars. And then the question is, are they pragmatic? Do they just want to keep it and become military dictators like Sisi in Egypt? Or are they truly ideological? The other thing we're going to see is at every point where government has fallen in Iran, along the periphery of Iran, we see uprisings, especially among the ethnic and the formerly repressed communities. So you're going to see unrest among the Kurds. You're going to see unrest among the Baluchis. And this unrest is, is going to be more damaging than in the past because when the government falls, the Iranians are going to want to keep the core Revolutionary Guard units in Tehran and the major cities. And so you're going to see a lot of unease along the periphery. The question is, how will that spread? That ethnic unease isn't necessarily anti-American. The Revolutionary Guard could be, however. So let's talk a little bit about the role of the United States. You know, people like you, people like me, and I think people like Mark really abused the living daylights out of the Obama administration for its failure to do more in 2009 to encourage and support the Iranian people as they stood against their government. Donald Trump has been vociferous in claiming that he is for the Iranian people. Secretary Pompeo gave a speech, made 12 demands. One of those demands of the Iranian government was that it treat its people better. And yet, in the face of these demonstrations, while we have seen some rhetoric coming from the U.S. government, we really haven't seen much more than rhetoric, have we? Well, you're absolutely right, Danny. And to be fair, uh, I mean, we may have been, we may have bashed or abused Obama over his failure in 2009, but I'm an equal opportunity abuser. So <laughs> I, I, me too. I, I'll be happy to abuse Trump and, and frankly, Bush before Obama. There's enough missed opportunities to go around. Here's the thing. When we get to the crisis, it's already too late. And the United States isn't going to win any of these battles for freedom if we're only operating in a reactive fashion. The question is, what are we doing to act proactively? So, for example, one of the questions is, if regimes like Iran or Russia in the future or China are able to shut down the Internet, what are we doing to provide a mechanism to provide pre-deployment of equipment ahead of time so that ordinary people are able to get past those national blackouts? But I don't think we've done it, have we? But, but Danny, that's what I mean. It's still reactive. We need to, I mean, what we do is we kid ourselves into this notion that if we have a diplomatic process, 
we won't need to have any of these alternate forms of, if you will, communication pre-deployed. Once the crisis hits, it's already too late. We've got to have that network there before the balloon goes up. That's where we fail. The other thing, honestly, I'm worried about is if you look at Kanan Makia's uh, Iraqi scholar uh, at Brandeis University, if you look at his old work, what you find is that Iraq used to be one of the least corrupt, if not the least corrupt, Arab states. That was in the 1970s, and then you had the Iran-Iraq war, you had sanctions, you had the invasion of Kuwait, and so forth, and it, it's one of the most corrupt Arab states now. What I worry about with this maximum pressure campaign is in the enthusiasm of some within the Trump administration to decimate the Iranian economy, we're not thinking about the fact that, you know, as soon as these ayatollahs fall, Iran should be our partner and Iranians should be our partners and that we don't want to destroy the economy to such an extent that they will be unable to rebuild it. Instead of simply wielding an axe, we need to wield a scalpel. I guess, I guess, but but on the other hand, I mean, I know that these protests are driven by internal corruption and by lots of things that are going on. But the reality is, is that we've we've decimated their oil sales. I think they've, they've they're they're down like ninety percent for year over year in terms of oil uh, exports, and this is all driven by increasing gas prices. It, you know, so I mean, I think there's a direct correlation between the pressure we've put on the Iranian economy and the fact that people, what sparked at least this particular uprising. Well, but it's one thing, Mark. We're willing to draw that. We're, we're like, we're, we're drawing him, the horse. Let him answer. We're going to debate in a minute. Oh, all right. You <laughs> no, 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 debate in a minute. Um, and, and I'll just get the popcorn as you do. But the fact of the matter is you're absolutely right. I mean, look, when people say maximum pressure doesn't work, historically, that's simply wrong. There's two times I can think of offhand where maximum pressure did work. It was what it would take to end the Iran-Iraq war and what it would take to release the American hostages. In both cases, Ayatollah Khomeini reversed course under maximum pressure. We've got to have that maximum pressure, but at the same time, what are we doing to have an eye towards the future of Iran and the future of the economy? You bring it down, but are you going to be able to reinflate it? The other thing when you were asking before what comes next, and, and this is something that's true of Lech Walesa in Poland and, and, and many other places, if you want to know who the next government of Iran is going to be, once we get through the chaos of the immediate fall, let's start looking in Avin prison. The fact that they're arresting environmentalists, they're scared of environmentalists because they don't want anyone organizing nationally around non-political themes which could then be leveraged into a network to come and get them. They're going after reformists, people who have become disillusioned with the revolution. They're coming after other civil society activists, after labor union activists. Those are the types of people who we should also be reaching out with. And then that brings up the question, while we can have maximum economic pressure, should we also maintain the, the sort of travel ban on Iranians to the extent which Trump is, or should we be trying to cultivate some of these people uh, and bring them out of Iran so that they can also return to Iran and, and be influenced by us. It, you're, you're absolutely right that we're not we're not preparing for what uh, what comes next. But in fairness, uh, 
you know, if you look at the history, the Bush administration wasn't pre- very good at preparing what comes next in Iraq. Uh, the Obama administration didn't very do a very good job of what comes next in Libya. Look, I'm with you, Michael. I think that the problem for us is that we know what we don't want. We don't actually, we're not willing to invest any time or understanding into what we do want. That goes for Iraq, that goes for Iran, that goes for Lebanon. And, you know, corruption is the, the tool that brings people to the streets. It It is the tool that sparked the Arab Spring and our constant surprise <laughs> at the, at the uh, dislike of the populations of that part of the world for the corruption of their leaders is, is quite incredible. So exit question. What would you advise the Trump administration to be doing right now? Um, with regard to Iran, I would go the Poland route and support independent trade unions. More important than that, I would shame the Europeans and the progressive, the European Greens and the progressive Democrats at home to do that so that, I mean, this money doesn't go directly into the coffers of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Let's empower the Iranian people. That's number one. Number two, I have no problem with Mike Pompeo's 12 points on Iran. The fact that some people say this is so extreme that we are telling them that they can't conduct terrorism, that they can't abuse human rights, you know, we've lost something if we normalize Islamic Republic behavior to the extent where, where this sort of thing happens. We also need to understand the psychological aspect of the game we're playing, that it's not simply, if we talk about withdrawing our influence from the region, we can't have influence if we're not there. And so we, we've got to square the circle. We've got to understand that any strategy has a diplomatic, informational, military, and economic component, and that we're not going to have the influence to shape post-revolutionary Iran or post-revolutionary revolutionary Iran if we don't have paramount influence in the region. And that's what we seem, I mean, bizarrely, to, to be headlong race to forfeit. All right, Michael, thank you so much for being willing to join us and to talk about these important issues. I know we're going to have you back, but thank you so much for being game to share your time with us, especially when you're traveling away from the office. Hey, thanks, Danny. Thanks, Mark. Ciao. So, Mark, not to steal your thunder, but that was a great interview. Oh, shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to rant for a second here, Danny. Okay. So, you know, you raise an important point, which is that what is our strategy for what to do in Iran beyond sanctions, right? You know, that would be a great topic for the House Intelligence Committee to be taking up, wouldn't it? And instead, what are we doing? I feel where this is going. Yeah, you know where it's going because it's going where it ought to. We're sitting around trying to impeach the president of the United States. You know what? Washington is so obsessed with impeachment today that there is a world on fire. There are good things happening in the world. There are bad things happening in the world. We've got People in Hong Kong, you know, rising up for their freedom. People in Iran rising up for their freedom. And Washington is completely focused on the wrong thing. So, yeah, the Trump administration ought to be doing better, but Congress isn't helping. Look, I agree with you. I mean, I, I, I hate to, I hate to, do, I hate to agree. You hate with to you. agree with me? I hate to agree with you, but uh, but but I do. I, you know, when I think about the role that Congress could be playing on this. We have really, really good sanctions on Russia because of Congress. Now, I will say that their motivation was all about Donald Trump. But nonetheless, we've got a good sanctions regime in place on Russia, and we've got sanctions imposed on people who truly deserve it. I wish that Congress was paying more attention to what's happening on the ground in these countries, you know, in Iraq, in Iran, in Lebanon, in Libya, for God's sakes, all of these places where we have opportunities. It's not just that 
things are happening. It is that we have opportunities to be doing better. And Congress has traditionally played this role. You know, where the executive branch is cautious and it doesn't like to do stuff, Congress has really gone in and said, no, human rights, we care about this. No, you know, demonstrations, prisoners, political prisoners, journalists being murdered, we care about this stuff. And instead, we are completely wrapped around this axle, which is talking about, you know, Donald Trump as if it is the next issue of Keeping Up with the Kardashians. I no longer care who Rudy Giuliani called. I want Congress to actually do something about these important issues. So, as I said, I do hate to agree with you, but I think we are missing an opportunity here. I think that Congress could hold the administration's feet to the fire on its lack of a follow-on strategy in Iran. And I don't know if we're going to have another chance. You heard it here first. Danny says I'm right. <laughs> so what, the, I mean, you know, we both worked in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for years where we did, we organized these kinds of hearings. And that, that. What would you be doing if you were up on Capitol Hill and you actually had members of Congress who were senators who were interested in this? What what should we be doing? What should Congress be doing to hold the administration's feet to the fire? And you know, Look, do, I we, would... do we need an Iran Liberation Act? Yeah, well, I mean, that that's that's not crazy. We certainly have enough Iran legislation. But, you know, what we really need, and I don't want to see us invade Iran like we invaded Iraq, because I think the people of Iran are perfectly prepared to get a better government. But we are not doing anything to help. What would I do? I would haul the assistant secretary for Near East up, our good friend <laughs> Dave Schenker, and say, OK, your boss just said that we're doing stuff to help the Iranians. Really? What is it? What are we doing? And by the way, what's your strategy? Get them on the record. What's our strategy to help the Iranian people fulfill those 12 goals, just as Mike Pompeo suggested they need to? If I was on the Intel Committee, I'd ask, what are we doing on the ground to help all of the, the groups that, that Michael Rubin talked about? What are we doing to help labor unions? What are we doing to help the people of Iran communicate? What are we doing to help exacerbate their disaffection with their own government? What are we doing to release information about the corruption of the leadership in Lebanon, the corruption of Iranian-backed proxies in Iraq, and of the Iranian government itself? And the answer is crickets. Well, we don't know because no one's asking the questions. And they ought to be asking the questions, the administration. And part of the problem is, is that when you don't ask the questions, then people don't formulate the answers. That's a good uh, column for you, by the way. You should write that column. The hearings that we could be having if we were actually paying attention to anything other than Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani. I may, I may very well do that. But you, but, Heard you know, it here first, folks. But, you know... <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's funny, like, you know, when I was when I worked in the White House in speech writing, as you've always mentioned, uh, that I was a speech writer, sometimes With speech writing. People speech oh, shut up. One of the the interesting facts about speech writing is that speeches are a forcing mechanism because the different bureaucracies debate policies. And then when the president decides to give a speech on Iran or a speech on something, it forces decisions. The president decides what words he's going to say, and that becomes the policy. It's the same thing with congressional hearings. Congressional hearings are a forcing mechanism. When the administration doesn't have a strategy for what to do with Iran, and all of a sudden the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee calls and says, I want you to come and explain your strategy, somebody says, oh, crap, we better get a strategy. Exactly. You know? no, and that's not happening more. today. And so, you know, yes, you know, the Trump administration should be doing more proactively other than sanctions and have a strategy, but it's Congress's job to make sure they have one and they're focused on the wrong thing. Let us go on record here, people, loyal listeners that you are. Mark has said two very correct things in this podcast. Oh, my gosh. I know. I feel can, like this might be a Can we get this on tape, Alexa? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, everybody. We'll be back next week. Take care. 
And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.